Hello, and welcome to First Ladies of the United States. I'm Zelda. This week, we are covering Martha Dandridge Custis Washington, the first First Lady. Martha Dandridge was born June 2, 1731, at her family's plantation, Chestnut Grove, in Virginia. Her father, Colonel John Dandridge, was the son of an English craftsman who came to the New World. Her mother, Frances Jones, was the daughter of a member of Colonial Virginia's legislature, the House of Burgesses. The Jones were somewhat prominent in society, with roots going back a century. The Dandridge family was professional and respectable, but not elite. The Dandridges, like many families in colonial Virginia, were slaveholders. They would have owned approximately a dozen people at any given time. Martha was the oldest of eight children. Not much is recorded about her childhood. However, she would have received a fairly standard education for her class and time. She would have learned reading and arithmetic to keep household accounts housekeeping, including supervision of enslaved staff, sewing and embroidery, music and dancing, and she would have had a religious education in the Anglican tradition. She was close to all of her siblings and would have helped raise them as the oldest daughter. Martha grew to be about five feet tall with dark hair and eyes. She was clever and attractive and extremely warm and friendly. When she was about 17, she attracted the attention of her neighbor, Virginia's most eligible bachelor, Daniel Park Custis. Daniel was about 20 years Martha's senior and of much higher social standing and wealth. Daniel's father, John Custis, however, strongly disapproved of the match. John Custis doesn't seem to have liked his son Daniel very much at all, strongly favoring his illegitimate son Jack. Jack was the son of John Custis and an enslaved woman named Alice. At some point, Jack was manumitted and given legal claim to his mother and four other enslaved people. However, at the time of Daniel and Martha's courtship, he was still a minor. Martha met with John Custis in 1749 and gave him a gift of a horse, a saddle, and a bridle. Nobody knows for sure what they discussed, but she seems to have convinced John that if she were to marry Daniel, she would make sure Daniel provided for Jack until he came of age. John Custis reluctantly gave the happy couple the go-ahead. In December 1749, John Custis passed away, and Daniel inherited five plantations and nearly 300 enslaved workers. Jack unfortunately died of meningitis in 1751, before he reached the age of majority. Martha and Daniel finally tied the knot on May 15, 1750, just before Martha's 19th birthday. The Custises lived on the main plantation, called White House, eh? which grew tobacco. Approximately half their enslaved workforce lived and worked on this plantation, including 12 domestic servants under Martha's supervision. She was likely overwhelmed with her new responsibilities. She would have been trained in how to manage a professional's household, but an elite household was an entirely different ballgame. While she was still getting her feet under her, 
She likely would have depended on the expertise of the women that she now owned. Two cookbooks that she would have inherited at this time were treasured possessions that she cherished her whole life and passed down to her heirs. The recipes were time-consuming and called for expensive ingredients like oranges that would have been out of reach in the Dandridge household. Martha was now a member of the colonial aristocracy. Martha and Daniel had four children. Their first boy, Daniel, was born in 1751 and died in infancy. Their second child, Francis, was born in 1753. John, called Jackie, was born in 1754, and Martha, called Patsy, was born in 1756. In April of 1757, at the age of three, Francis grew ill and died. And as the family mourned, Daniel Park Custard, Martha's husband, suddenly passed away that July, likely of a heart attack. At the age of just 25, Martha was suddenly a single mother of two, the manager of one of the largest estates in Virginia. Daniel had left no will, so the estate followed 18th century Virginia inheritance laws. The estate would pass to the surviving Custis children when they were adults, with males at age 21 to females at marriage. One-third of the estate, called the Widow's Dower, was reserved to Martha until her death, at which time it would be split among the remaining Custis heirs. As a widow, Martha was considered femme sole, which meant that she could own property and carry out business in her own name. If she remarried, she would be femme covert and her husband would have use of the widow's dower, although it would still belong to the Custis estate. Daniel left behind more than 17,500 acres of land, 300 enslaved workers, two houses, and thousands and thousands of pounds of cash and bank stocks. She conducted the estate's business in Great Britain over letter, informing her husband the context of his death and her taking over. She executed the estate firmly and effectively. She was, however, dependent on the estate supervisors, her friends and family, and other advisors. She had never overseen so large an operation by herself. Her trial by fire, however, is a testament to her ability to take matters into her own hands and to get things done. It was not long before she began to consider remarrying. It was not uncommon for widows to remarry quickly in colonial Virginia, especially ones who had two young children, and thousands of acres of land to manage. Widow Custis was young, pretty, and rich, an attractive prospect for anyone. She had her pick of the men of Virginia. In spring of 1758, she began to receive suitors. The most likely match was a Mr. Charles Carter of Cleve. Like Daniel had been, he was prominent, prosperous, and 20 years older than her. He was looking for a mother for his children. He considered the match already made. But he had a competitor. Colonel George Washington of the Virginia Regiment was a very handsome man. He was six foot two, athletically built, with reddish hair and blue eyes. He was eight months younger than Martha, and a bit awkward. While he wasn't a rich man, he wasn't a poor one either. He was the younger son, but he had still inherited two farms and a handful of enslaved people. Even so, 
Martha brought all the status and wealth to the match. Their grandson, Wash, gives us a meet cute story. In 1758, Martha Custis and George Washington were both invited to dine at the home of a mutual friend named Chamberlain. When George arrived, he told his servant Thomas Bishop to have their horses ready to go after dinner. When dinner came to an end, however, he was so dazzled by Martha's wit and beauty that he told Bishop to untack the horses. They were staying overnight. Unfortunately, this story is probably not the story of how they met. The Dandridges and Washingtons ran in the same social circles, so George and Martha were likely to have already been acquainted. I can completely buy that the dinner was the spark to their love, though. Martha and George courted for only a few months before they decided to marry in the new year. There was just one obstacle. Martha did not want the life of a soldier's wife. George made it known that after his wedding he would be leaving the army and he sought and won a seat in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Martha and George married at White House on July 6, 1759. Over the next four months, the family moved to the Washington family plantation at Mount Vernon. George and Martha were quite content there. Martha focused on raising her family and frequent entertaining of friends and family, and George focused on the estate. Both Martha and George were fervent Anglicans. During this time, Martha established a lifelong habit of solitary devotion for an hour every morning. This would continue even in war camps and presidential manners. They also shared an hour every evening for Bible study. George and Martha were young and in love. They were happy. George and Martha had no children together, something George was always a little bitter about. However, George loved his stepchildren, Jackie and Patsy. Martha was a quintessential helicopter parent in a lot of ways. You can hardly blame her, having lost her first two kids. She could hardly bear to be away from Jackie for any length of time, and Patsy never left her side. Once, when visiting George's brother and sister-in-law, she left Jackie behind under her sister's care as an experiment. She lasted three days. She also spoiled him. George never felt at liberty to be very strict with him either, since he was, quote-unquote, only his stepfather. When Jackie was a teenager, George and Martha sent him to Anglican school to finish his education. Patsy never left Martha's side, in part because her health was really frail. She had always had fits, and when she was 12 years old, she began to have full-blown seizures. It's probable that Patsy had some form of epilepsy. However, none of the doctors at the time were able to successfully diagnose and treat her. Over the years, the Washingtons consulted with dozens of doctors and tried every medication and therapy they could think of. In 1773, when Patsy was just 17, she had a seizure after dinner and passed away. Martha was so grief-stricken. She couldn't even attend Jackie's wedding to Eleanor Calvert, nicknamed Nellie, eight months later. As those happy days at Mount Vernon grew increasingly frantic, the political situation in the English North American colonies grew increasingly fraught. In the 1760s, the Stamp Act and the Townsend Acts trampled on the rights of the colonists believed they had to self-govern and to political representation. 
1770, a detachment of British troops fired on civilians in what became known as the Boston Massacre. In the summer of 1774, the British Parliament passed what became known as the Intolerable Acts, meant to intimidate Massachusetts into submission. However, rather than doing that, the Act simply enraged colonists from all throughout the North American colonies. Martha and George Washington kept up with the news, and would have been all too aware of the increase in tensions and the increasing pressure to take sides. In 1774, a new body of elected representatives called the Continental Congress was convened, with delegates from 12 of the British Atlantic colonies. George was elected as part of the Virginia delegation, and left for Philadelphia, leaving Martha to manage the estate alone, as he knew she was well capable of it. George was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1775 as well. As the colonies revved up for a revolution in the summer of 1775, Martha would have heard the news the colonial Minutemen and British Redcoats had exchanged fire in the Battle of Lexington and Concord in April. Then in June, she received the most important letter of her life, one of the only ones to have survived. Her husband wrote her that he had been appointed head of the American Army. He told her that he hoped to be back to Mount Vernon by autumn and that, quote, I would enjoy more real happiness and felicity in one month at home, then I have the most distant prospect of reaping abroad if my stay were to be seven times seven years. The war, of course, was not over by autumn, and her husband wrote her in October 1775, asking her to come to winter camp. It was a true request, not an order like some husbands might have issued at the time. George had nothing but respect for Martha. He knew she needed traveling, that she had been, never been north of Annapolis, the dangers of traveling through the war zone. Martha had to make a choice. Would she stay at Mount Vernon alone that winter, as her husband and his army camped in frigid Massachusetts? Would she visit friends and family around various estates in Virginia? Or would she leave Virginia for the first time? and travel uncomfortably in the freezing cold to be with the man she loved. Martha chose to go. Her trip north was full of firsts. The first time she was received by honor guards in balls. The first time she dealt with diverse religious affiliations and cultural bets. As she passed through Philadelphia, she experienced the challenge of national politics for the first time. A ball was to be thrown in her honor but a delegation of four serious men called on her to express their sentiment that a ball was an exit from these troubled times, and to ask her to not grace that company which, we are informed, she has an invitation this evening. Martha acquiesced, as she knew that her husband needed the support of all of the colonies, and to build and maintain a broad coalition. The ball was cancelled. She finally arrived in the Army's winter camp in Cambridge on December 11th, much to George's relief. The Army, the officers, and the officers' wives all absolutely adored Martha. They called her Lady Washington and praised her personality and bearing. Martha was calm and optimistic and friendly to everyone in camp, from the lowliest private to the highest foreign dignitary. 
She even joked around with the officers. The story is almost certainly apocryphal, but legend holds that she named a feral tomcat Hamilton after the tempestuous officer Alexander Hamilton. She became friends with many of the officers' wives, including, at various points in the war, young Kitty Littlefield Green, Betsy Schuyler Hamilton, Lucy Knox, Peggy Arnold, and famed poet and writer Mercy Otis Warren. After meeting Martha, Mercy Otis Warren wrote to her friend Abigail Adams that Martha had greeted her, quote, with that politeness and respect shown in the first interview among the well-bred, and with the ease and cordiality of older friendship. The complacency of her manners speaks at once to the benevolence of her heart, and her affability, candor, and gentleness qualify her to soften the hours of private life, or to sweeten the cares of the hero, and smooth the rugged pains of war. Amused bystanders commented on how Martha's old man sometimes failed to notice when his dear Patsy was talking to him, as he was more than a foot taller than her. They were doubly amused? that she would yank on his coattails to get his attention. Her youngest granddaughter would later recall that when Martha wanted George to really pay attention to what she was saying, she would pull his lapel to get his face down to her level. They were obviously adorably in love, even after nearly two decades of marriage. Nathaniel Green captured their affection very simply when he wrote, They are very happy in each other. Martha's duties in camp were much more public than her duties at home. She was the primary hostess for the army, receiving congressmen and foreign dignitaries. She knitted and sewed clothing for the men of the army and made hospital visits. When Hamilton resigned in a huff and left George in the lurch in 1780, she even assisted with George's correspondence. When Martha was not in camp, she acted as a fundraiser and advocate for the army. The only surviving letter from Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha Skelton, written in 1780, directly references Martha Washington's fundraising coordination. She said that Martha had said that George requested that the funds raised in Virginia be used to buy shirts rather than given directly to the army. The gentlewomen of Virginia instead decided to purchase the fabric and make the shirts themselves, embroidering their initials so the men knew that the shirts were handmade for them. In the spring of 1776, smallpox broke out in the army, then in New York. Martha had to be evacuated to Philadelphia, as she had never had the disease, and she couldn't be with George to see his victory in New York. Determined that this would not happen again, that May, Martha went through with a controversial medical procedure called inoculation to make her immune to the disease. Inoculation was the precursor to a modern vaccination. And it's a little gross. <laughs> Essentially, posts from an infected person carrying a mild version of smallpox was applied to a small cut on the patient, triggering a hopefully mild case of smallpox that the patient had a high chance of overcoming. Once someone was inoculated, they were no longer in danger of contracting the disease. However, inoculation carried its own risks. The patient came down with smallpox, after all, there was a very real chance of death. Fortunately, Martha survived, with nary a scar or scratch. In June 1776, George returned to New York and Martha followed, 
Just as she arrived, however, the British fleet appeared on the horizon, and she returned to Philadelphia with Lucy Knox. Why go all the way home if nothing much came of the attack? She was still in Philadelphia the first week of July. On July 2nd, 1776, the Commonwealth of Congress voted for independence. On July 4th, the Declaration of Independence was adopted and signed. On July 8th, it was read aloud on the streets. You would have seen the parade and may have heard the public reading of the Declaration on Broadway Common through her window. It was unlikely that she was out on the streets, but she knew about the Declaration before George did. He received the news on July 9th in a way that few others did. Martha Washington saw the moment that a nation was born. On August 21st, 1776, Martha became a grandmother. Jackie's wife, Nellie, gave birth to Elizabeth Parkhouse, called Liza. Her papa, Jackie, described her as as fine a healthy, fat baby as ever was born. Sixteen months later, in December 1777, Jackie and Nellie had a second daughter, named Martha for her grandmother, who the family called Patty. Sadly, that same month, Martha's sister Nancy passed away, leaving behind two teenage boys and a distraught husband. She was unable to join her brother-in-law and his family, though, as she needed to return home to join her husband in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. In December 1777, the Marquis de Lafayette wrote to his wife that General Washington has just decided to send for his wife, a modest and respected person who loves her husband madly. For the third year in a row, Martha Washington joined the winter camp in February 1778, still mourning her little sister. Lady Washington was cheered on her arrival. 1777 had been a long, hard year, and Martha was seen as a kind of quasi-mother figure to the soldiers, a pleasant and kind woman who visited them when they were sick. She led the officers' wives in knitting, darning, and sewing for them, making mountains of socks. The winter at Valley Forge was miserable, but the presence and labor of the hundreds of women at camp made it tolerable to the men who lived through it. In May, news arrived that France had recognized and allied herself with the United States of America. By June, the army was invigorated and ready to break camp. On June 18th, the British pulled their forces back from New York. The Americans carried them every step of the way. Even the disastrous Battle of Monmouth was a PR victory. The remaining five years of the war became a familiar pattern. Martha went home in the summer, waited through the fall to see if George would be able to come home, and when he wasn't, she hopped into a carriage to join him in the winter. She saw her family very little in these years. She was simply too tired to do the extra traveling. Her youngest granddaughter, named Eleanor Park Custis and called Nellie, and her grandson, George Washington Park Custis, nicknamed Wash, were born in 1779 and 1781. In September 1781, the British besieged Yorktown, Virginia. Jackie was allowed to tag along with his stepfather to the siege to visit friends and family in the area. His grandmother and Martha's mother, Frances Jones Dandridge, lived nearby. On October 19th, 
General Cornwallis surrendered to the Americans. At some point during the siege, however, Jackie contracted a camp fever. This was most likely typhus. His illness grew more and more severe, and he passed away just three weeks short of his 27th birthday. He left behind his mother and stepfather, his wife Nellie, and his four young children. Martha had now outlived all four of her children. The loss of Jackie hit her hard. George put military business on hold for a little while. Congress could wait until his son was buried and his wife and daughter-in-law were provided for. Jackie was buried in Elkin, Virginia, and Martha's brother, Bat, agreed to administer his estate for Nellie. George Washington stayed in Mount Vernon a week before going to Philadelphia. Rather than stay at home and wallow in grief, Martha decided to follow him and winter in Philadelphia. She arrived as she had in 1775, proud from parade and honor guard, the great wife of the conquering hero. She returned to her daughter-in-law and the children the summer of 1782, and returned to Philadelphia again that winter to support George in the final days of the war. Though the British had surrendered, it was make-or-break time, and the army was nearly broken. Congress refused to pay them, and they could not go home. The army nearly mutinied. The Congress were moved from Philadelphia to Princeton, New Jersey that summer, as unpaid troops marched through the streets, and they summoned George. George postponed going until Martha was well enough to come with him in late August. They knew a peace treaty would come soon. Martha finally returned home to Mount Vernon in October to prepare for George's homecoming. The peace treaty finally arrived in November, and George could go home. He resigned his command and was greeted at his doorstep by his wife on Christmas Eve, 1783. After the end of the war, George and Martha were 52 years old and ready to retire from public life. The war had been long and demanding, and they were both tired. They were ready to resume life as normal in Mount Vernon. They adopted their two youngest grandchildren, Nellie and Wash, who were six and four. They would raise them as their own. The Washingtons also took in Martha's 16-year-old niece, Fanny, to finish her education. And Fanny found her future fiancé nearly as soon as she arrived. George's nephew, George Augustine. George Augustine was a charming man who had served as Lafayette's aide in the war. However, it was well known that he had come down with consumption, what we know today as tuberculosis. They were married on October 14, 1785 despite the groom's ill health. Later that year, George Augustine took over day-to-day -day management of the Mount Vernon estate. He and Fanny lived in a separate house on the property. In 1787, Fanny began to take ill as well, with similar symptoms to George Augustine's consumption. George Washington also suffered the loss of his brothers Samuel and Jack during those years, and he and Martha took in Samuel's children, George Steptoe and Lawrence and Harriet Washington. The boys were eventually sent to Alexandria to finish their education, and Harriet, who was about nine, remained with the household. Martha was extremely busy with his influx of children, as well as the entertaining of droves of visitors who came to meet the great general. The busy and bustle of these years were a familiar and comforting type. 
She and George had time to enjoy each other's company. While Martha focused on the kids and the guests, George busied himself with repairing the estate. Neither of them, however, had really retired from politics. George continued to correspond with Madison, Jefferson, and other influential men of Virginia. And as the head of the most famed dinner table in the land, Martha heard news from all over the colonies nightly. In 1786, Virginia decided to hold a convention in Annapolis and invited all the states to send delegations. That convention called for another to be held in Philadelphia the following May of 1787. George was invited to serve as a representative of Virginia. Over Martha's dissent, he agreed. That convention in Philadelphia was to become known as the Constitutional Convention the meeting at which the Constitution of the United States was drawn up. George was unanimously elected president of the convention, which went on until September. He went alone. Martha stayed at Mount Vernon to care for their family interests, especially their two young grandchildren. Even after George returned, he remained invested in politics, exasperating Martha to no end. She wrote to Fanny that, we have not a single article of news but politics, which I do not concern myself about. Despite her resolution to be disinterested, her husband was gradually talked around to allow himself to be elected. On April 14, 1789, Mount Vernon received the word that George Washington had been unanimously elected President of the United States of America. George set off for New York only two days later and was inaugurated president on April 30th, 1789. The most pressing order of business was for him to get organized, and he and a few of his advisors decided that he would receive visitors on Tuesdays and Fridays from 2 to 3. On Tuesday, there would be a presidential day, a kind of reception for any respectable-looking man who wished to meet the president. On Fridays would be a drawing-room gathering, a dinner party with both men and women. The first six weeks of his life in New York were frantic and lonely. Then, like a shaft of sunlight out of a cloud in a moon, Martha appeared on the horizon with Nellie and Wash, along with six enslaved workers, including Martha's ladies' maids, Ona Judge and Molly. Fortunately, Martha found the presidential mansion acceptable for living and entertaining. It was a three-story house that faced St. George's Park and had plenty of room for both the family and their free and enslaved servants. Unfortunately, the house was demolished in 1856. Martha's social life was both busy and restrictive. As the very first first lady, she had no way of knowing how radically different her life would be from that which she had known in Virginia or in the military camps. To avoid showing favoritism, George had announced unilaterally, the Washingtons could not attend or host private gatherings, which had been the very backbone of Martha's society her entire life. She also hosted the two formal receptions on Tuesdays and Fridays, every week, and a third dinner party for congressmen and their wives on Thursdays during the month's Congress was in session. Careful attention had to be paid to those guests' lists to avoid even the appearance of favoritism and to ensure a geographically and politically balanced room. Her hair had to be done by a hairdresser every day, and her clothes had to follow the seasons much more closely. She wrote a letter to Fanny complaining that 
You would, I fear, think me a great deal in the fashion if you could but see me. Despite all this stress, she never showed it. Guests always remarked on how friendly and intelligent she was, always complimented her modest manners and dignified bearing. Her easy friendliness counterbalanced George's formality and reserve, even awkwardness, and her gentility softened his commanding edges and humanized the icon that he had become. Only three weeks into her new gig, George had a health scare. He complained of fever, rash, and headache, and a carbuncle on his left leg caused him pain. He was ill through the summer, and acquaintances called throughout to hear his condition. One of them, Abigail Adams, was to become a welcome friend. We'll talk about her more thoroughly next month, but briefly. Abigail was the wife of the vice president, John Adams and an outspoken Unitarian from Massachusetts. After arriving in New York in June, she was charmed by Martha's plain dress, modest manners, and dignified and feminine bearing. During the Friday gatherings, she always sat next to Martha as the wife of the vice president. The two women, very different in most ways, were both intelligent and predisposed to friendship. So friends they became. Martha was also able to maintain her friendships with Washington's advisors' wives. Her friends from the ward Betsy Schuyler Hamilton and Lucy Knox, and her friend Sarah Jay, all had husbands who were close advisors of George, and so they were able to call on the presidential mansion when it suited them. The friendships of these women made their husbands more willing to cooperate. George and John Adams didn't care for each other's styles, and Alexander Hamilton hadn't been close with him after spectacularly quitting his post as an aide-de-camp during the war. But Martha's friendships with Abigail and Betsy smoothed the tensions between the husbands and forced them to cooperate. Despite Martha's busy schedule, she, George, and the children were able to go to shows and educational opportunities. They went for carrot drives with the Adamses, attended concerts and plays around New York, and visited traveling circuses. One of them even had an elephant. Over the course of the first years of the new government, the presidential mansion had grown overcrowded with staff and secretaries. In 1790, the French minister returned to France and vacated a large four-story house on Broadway, and the Washingtons moved in as quickly as possible, only to then have to move to Philadelphia because Congress moved the capital there. During the move, the Washingtons took a three-month vacation to Mount Vernon, where George's health recovered and Martha was surrounded by children. She had written Nellie to tell her that they were coming home, and Nellie would immediately come to Mount Vernon for a long visit. Martha's granddaughters Betsy and Patty and George's niece Harriet were now in their teens. Little Nellie and Wash were preteens, and Nellie's children by her second marriage were between one and six, and Fanny and George Augustine's children Martha and George Lafayette were a toddler and a baby, respectively. As biographer Patricia Brady put it, it must have been bedlam with ten children in the house, but it was just the sort of happy uproar that Martha loved. During this vacation, Martha also managed to convince George that restricting her ability to host and attend private gatherings was a mistake that had no political gain, but made her miserable. In Philadelphia, she would continue the formal entertaining schedule. However, she was now to be allowed to visit and entertain her own friends. They arrived in Philadelphia on November 29, 1790, and settled in some, the Morris house. 
Philadelphia was larger than New York. There was more to do, and Martha took Nellie and watched to as many plays and museums and other shows as she could, especially those with educational value. She was now significantly happier, because she could maintain her own social life. She and George even occasionally attended dances and concerts together, and Martha bought black velvet to have a new ball gown made. The presidential household also maintained a box in the South Street Theater. Another of Philadelphia's many pleasures was the widespread availability of books. Martha enjoyed reading, and Philadelphia had the most printing presses in the American nation at this time. Books about religion, philosophy, and history were readily available, and Martha's personal library had a huge variety of them. She also enjoyed novels, which were not available to her as a girl, but which by this time were widespread in Philadelphia. She also read newspapers and magazines by the stack. Nellie, by this time a teenager, also read widely after her grandmother's example and was a lifelong reader. The children had been tutored up to this point. They were now settled in schools in Pennsylvania, and a dancing tutor was arranged for them, their friends, and even Abigail Adams' six-year-old niece, as it was necessary to have lots of children at dancing lessons to form sets. George's nephews George Steptoe and Lawrence Washington were brought to study at the University of Pennsylvania, where they buckled themselves down and did fairly well academically. Nellie studied the harpsichord and acquitted herself well in the studies of French and Italian. Wash, on the other hand, disliked school, except for recess. His grandparents couldn't convince him to study at all. As soon as their backs were turned, out the door he went to play with his friends. Pennsylvania had a law on the books that enslaved adults would be freed after six months of residence. This came to Martha's attention on April 5, 1790, and it concerned her and George. Not on the moral basis of, you know, slavery is wrong but on a financial one. If a Custis slave became free, George would have to reimburse the Custis estate the cost of that person. Three of their enslaved servants who were with the household were adults. George's men Hercules and Austin, and Martha's maid Molly. The Washingtons decided to send them back to Mount Vernon on errands and visits periodically, so that they had to leave Philadelphia. This extremely transparent scheme would certainly make me resentful, and I can't imagine that Hercules, Austin, and Molly felt much differently. Martha was far more content in Philadelphia than she had been in New York. However, by 1792, the health of her family weighed heavily on her. George's nephew, George Augustine, was clearly dying, and Fanny was growing increasingly ill. She and George were now 60, rather senior for the time, and she feared that another four years of the presidency would surely kill him. In the spring of 1792, George had told his advisors that he intended to retire later that year. Thank you very much. However, party divisions, embodied by the fervent and upsetting attacks of Hamilton and Jefferson upon each other, threatened to split the new country asunder. George was begged by his advisors. Both, including both Hamilton and Jefferson, to allow himself to be reelected. Over Martha's firm and bitter opposition, he accepted a second term as president. Martha had no choice but to resign herself to continuing in her role as the president's wife for another four years.
those four years started with an ill omen. A yellow fever pandemic broke out in Philadelphia in June and grew worse throughout the summer. George tried to send Martha to Mount Vernon for her safety in August, but she flatly refused to leave without him. The Washington family finally left on September 10th, practically the final prominent family to do so. About 5,000 people died that year, including the mayor of Philadelphia. Congress refused to reconvene in Philadelphia, so the capital city once again relocated, this time to nearby Germantown, Pennsylvania. They re-relocated to Philadelphia again later that winter. The Germantown residence is actually the oldest surviving presidential residence, and it looks pretty cool. I'll link you up to it in the show notes. The political situation in these four years was tense at best. Wars were breaking out in Europe and the Caribbean. Federalists and Republicans were at each other's throats. And the president was increasingly the object of public criticism. In 1794, the Whiskey Rebellion had to be halted in Pennsylvania. And in 1795, the Jay Treaty, which concluded peace terms with Britain, returned to public disgust and was only passed through Congress on the strength of George's personality, while mobs rioted in the streets. In July 1795, Martha and the kids went to Mount Vernon for an extended stay before Congress reconvened that fall. Martha and her daughter-in-law, Nellie, agreed, much to granddaughter Nellie's displeasure, that the 16-year-old should stay with her mother that winter. Young Nellie wrote to a friend, Apart from Grandma is all I dread. It is impossible to love anyone more than I love her. Martha had raised her and was now leaving her behind. She must have felt terribly hurt and lonely. Martha was lonely too. Her weekly letters home were full of needless advice and gifts. Exactly like your freshman year of college, when your mom calls you every week and sends you random things that she thinks might be useful. The next year, in June 1796, an enslaved woman named Ona Judge escaped from Mount Vernon and took her freedom. Ona is a fascinating figure, and I highly recommend reading the book Never Caught, the Washington's relentless pursuit of the runaway slave of Ona Judge. In extremely brief, Ona worked as one of Martha's personal lady's maids. Martha thought she had no reason to leave. She was favored and treated with affection, and her workload was always light. Martha and George concluded that Ona had been seduced and needed rescuing, and they searched for her for the rest of their lives. Gay. The real story, though, is that Ona was a slave who yearned to be free and for her children to be free. She saw a chance of that life, and she took it. She was never captured, and she lived the rest of her days as a free woman in New Hampshire. She learned how to read, converted to Christianity, and lived until 1848. She was interviewed by two abolitionist papers in the 1840s, and I will link you to that in the show notes. The winter of 1796-1797 was the final winter of George's presidency, a fact that brought great joy to both George and Martha. George's farewell address was well received by the public, and George remained strictly nonpartisan on who would succeed him. John Adams was elected, and George and Martha stayed in Philadelphia only long enough to watch his inauguration on March 4th before they bounced and left for home. They finally retired to Mount Vernon, just as they always dreamed. The next two years were idyllic. 
guests came and went, visiting the former president and his wonderful wife. His granddaughter Nellie got married, and she had a baby in late November 1799. George worked on some DIY projects on the estate, and Martha did needlework and visited with friends and family. In December of 1799, this all came to a screeching halt. George suddenly came down with a bacterial infection, which gave him a slow and painful death. He passed away on December 14th, surrounded by friends and family and doctors. Martha was by his side. She is said to have said, "'Tis well. All is now over. I shall soon follow him. I have no more trials to pass through." George's sudden and horrible death was a great shock. They had been married for just shy of 41 years. Martha was now, once again, a widow. The nation mourned with her as she buried her husband. He lied in state for three days at home to prevent being buried alive, and then was buried on December 18, 1799. Martha was stunned into silence. She would not speak for weeks or cry for months. Gone was the easy smile and the warm laughter. Martha was now still as a stone. The night George died, she shut the door to the room that she had shared with him for four decades and moved to a smaller one on the third floor. Sometime in the next three years, she burned all of their correspondence that she could find. Even in death, she wished to keep their private lives private. George's will was largely regular. He gave so-and-so a gun, so-and-so an annuity. He assured his step-grandchildren that he loved them and saw them as his own. There was one article that set it apart, however. George left a provision in his will that the Washington slaves would be freed upon Martha's death. George had wrestled with the morality of slavery, especially in his later years. He ultimately came to the conclusion that the institution would need to end. However, the Washington slaves and Custis slaves had been intertwined for four decades. It would be impossible, he thought, to free some but not all, with no transition period whatsoever. He had created a register of all the slaves working in the Custis and Washington estates, and what they did and their relationships to each other and who owned them, so it would be clear who would be free. He provided in his will for funds for slaves who could not work, and for child slaves to be apprenticed out until they turned 25, so they could learn useful skills to support themselves. That they should be freed upon the death of Martha, however, put her in a sticky situation. In December of 1800, she wrote in a letter to Abigail Adams that she feared for her life, since the Washington slaves knew they were to be freed on her death. Abigail wrote that Martha did not feel as though her life was safe in their hands. 1800 had also been a poor year, and Mount Vernon had a surplus of labor. She may have felt that supporting the Washington slaves was decreasing the Custis estate, which she wished to be as large as possible for her own heirs. Martha decided to manumit the able-bodied adult Washington slaves, effective January 1st, 1801. She provided no land or tools or assistance at all, but they were free. In spring of 1802, Martha took ill with bilious fever. In the time she had left, she took care of most of her own end-of-life arrangements. 
she chose her burial dress and took her final communion. She said her goodbyes and gave her final advice to her assorted grandchildren, nieces, and nephews, and friends. On May 22, 1802, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington died at the age of 71, surrounded by her grandchildren, and was buried next to her husband, George Washington. Martha Washington was an astounding person and leaves behind nearly mythical legacy, never elected and never really wanting her role. She nevertheless set the tone for all future first ladies, an office that nobody, including her, had quite expected to exist. She filled it with grace, friendliness, and dignity. And as a figure, I think everybody can aspire toward in many ways. However, her legacy is complicated by slavery. During her own lifetime, she was completely unrepentant about her slaveholding and saw it as normal and proper that she should own slaves. Even the very survival of her story is complicated by it. Martha's great-granddaughter, the daughter of Wash, Mary Anna Randolph Custis, married Robert E. Lee in 1843. Yes, the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Mary is the one who ultimately published Wash's recollections of his grandparents in 1859, just two years before the Civil War broke out. Without slavery, the story of Martha Washington would not and could not exist. Each month, I want to recommend a podcast that I love and that I hope you will love too. This week, I'd like to recommend Ben Franklin's World. Ben Franklin's World is a podcast about early America. Each week, the host Liz Covard interviews the guests about their work in researching the Americas in the pre-colonial, colonial, and early republic eras. I would specifically like to recommend that you listen to her episodes on Martha Washington and on Ona Judge, numbers 74 and 137 respectively. Thank you so much for listening to First Ladies of the USA. For transcripts and sources, please see the Martha Washington post on firstladiesofthousa.wordpress.com. You can also email me at firstladiesofthousa at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash firstladiesofthousa. And follow me on Twitter at at firstladiespod. Hope to see you next month. And don't forget to remember the lady.